0: chat your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's my name is CJ the DJ and I am your host for this week's a grad chat of course a show like this could not happen without the support of the school graduate studies and postdoctoral affairs as well as CFRC so thank you very much to both of them now, if your mates miss the show at any time, you can download the podcast the next day on either iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CFRC Podcast, so no excuse not to hear what our awesome students and postdoctoral fellows are doing. Today, though, I would like to introduce you to Arvin Krishnandahal, who is doing a Master of Public Administration under the supervision of Dr. Rachel LaForest. Welcome to Gretcha, Arvind.
1: Good morning, Colette. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: And it's great to have you on the show. It's not often I get people from public administration coming on. Uh, for those people who don't know, it's, it's it's a shorter program. It's considered a professional program. and But the, even though it's professional, you still get to do a research project. So this is what one of the reasons I wanted you to come on and do the show, because those research projects are fascinating. Your background, though is in music <laughs> is and in I'm music. thinking music public administration how does that all figure out so even though you did your bachelor of music in political science and classical music at McGill tell us what that actually entailed and what were your aspirations at the time with that degree
1: we start off with the big questions I, I know no,
0: no mucking around <laughs> here of it <laughs>
1: So yes, my background at McGill, uh, and I believe my background as an individual is deeply rooted in classical music. I'm I'm a, I'm a classical flutist. I still play in many community ensembles right now across the GTA, which is an amazing experience. At the time I wanted to, when I was in high school, I continued playing the flute, an instrument I picked up in middle school, and I fell in love with it. Right. And but I was also engaged with the world of politics. The way I describe it is the two going hand in hand for me. That's how my brain works. Well, that's One brilliant. You half... <laughs> give a yourself little...
0: plenty of options. <laughs>
1: <laughs> One half of my brain is dedicated to community engagement and community involvement and the right. intersection between policy and community actors on the ground level and right. what that relationship is. And the other half is, is performance in classical music which is lovely. Yeah. During my time at McGill, I was I had amazing opportunities to learn a lot. It was a very humbling experience. I'll say yes. that. <laughs> I, think any, I think any music student could tell you that being in an intensive environment and a rigorous environment, it could be quite humbling. So in my first and second years, there was a lot of unlearning that I had to do.
0: Oh, is that right?
1: Yes. Yes, a lot of unlearning that I actually had to do, but it was an amazing program. And I learned so much from my teachers and mentors um, who I still stay connected with today. It's kind of funny because at the end of my undergraduate degree, which was last year, I applied to graduate programs in music Uh and in public policy. And it was a really tough decision, but I was pretty inspired by the work I engaged with in my undergraduate research project with Danielle Beland at uh, McGill University. And from that moment, that kind of spurred my decision and kind of informed my decision to pursue graduate studies at Queen's in public policy.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. Talking about your music, I'm always inspired by people's creativity and their feeling for music and I think once you've got music in your bones you can never get it out it's always Mm. going to be there isn't it and it's just a matter of whether you just want to play for your own enjoyment or whether you want to play for other people to
1: hear of course and it's a it's a fine balance right Mm. and for different individuals even for professionals that question that balance is something that always fluctuates mm-hmm. and that I find so interesting.
0: I always find, and it's funny you say classical music, because I always find if I need to concentrate at work, it's the classical music I put up. One, because I can't sing to it, <laughs> which is probably good for everybody around. Um, but it's also, I always find it so relaxing uh, to, to listen to that classical music. And I was always jealous of people who could play instruments <laughs> so well. I tried classical guitar didn't do too okay. bad then sport took over <laughs>
1: okay
0: <laughs> <laughs> and it was like you no know, which one do i train yeah sport or my music and uh sport sport one <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> but for you clearly no, you know the music is going to be there for you and it was nice that you could have that bit of a balance too in your studies yes at mcgill but has there been a gap between what you did at mcgill and now joining the MPA program?
1: That's a great question. I think for me, there were were always periods in my undergrad throughout my four years where there would be times that I would be fully invested in the performance side of things and kind of doing a bit of policy work on the side. Right. And during my last year, there was a lot of that. I wouldn't say necessarily it was a conflict, I think they complement each other really well, but it was difficult, right? Right. You know, during your last year, you have to perform a very rigorous final exam, a final recital. You have to prepare for graduate auditions and the the bar is raised. So throughout that transition period from, I would say I graduated in May. So from June to September, I think I just took some time to breathe. Right. Which is something we rarely do as musicians, and, and as individuals, as everyday individuals in all years, mm-hmm. so it wasn't it, me. It was a very smooth and natural transition. However, getting into the MPA program, you know, starting in September, October, I did miss some. I, I must admit that I did miss some of uh, <laughs> playing because, you know, at McGill we had to play every day, right? And so I, I I supplemented that with some of my own individual practicing and own individual artistic engagements, which was quite exciting. To delve
0: into it's always going to be there it is you. your major research project then i mean yeah. first of all like i said you know the mpa program is not a long program no no uh, you know it's, it's it's a short program it's only a year so that doesn't give you a lot of time to do all your coursework and a major <laughs> research project <laughs> and that, again that's i always marvel how much people can fit in, in in one short period of time yeah but your project is on Race, Mobilization and Advocacy, Nonprofit Representation in Times of Crisis. What a great title!
1: It took me a while to come up with oh, did it? it. I think
0: it's brilliant. I love it.
1: Thank you. I, I,
0: I can see that up there. Thank you. <laughs> and it kind of says a lot already.
1: Yes. But
0: before we get into some of the questions, First of all, I guess, what made you choose that title? But, you know, what is the basis of this research project? Because, like I said, it's not like doing a PhD where it's a 350-page document. It's not going to be that. So, you know, can you give us a bit of an overview of what what you're looking
1: at? I was particularly fascinated as someone who was involved with politics at a young age about the role of other actors, particularly those on the grassroots level. We're talking about nonprofit leaders. And for as long as I can remember, I was always interested in this in this third sector, known as the nonprofit sector. And I was involved with an advocacy collective called the Anti-Black Racism and Systemic Discrimination Collective of Peel, where I'm based right now in the region of Peel, comprising of the municipalities of Branton, Mississauga, and Caledon. It was revealed during the COVID-19 pandemic that marginalized and traditionally underrepresented groups were not getting vaccinated and that data right. wasn't being collected. So this advocacy collective decided to lobby and to push and to advocate for real systems change, to gather some funding to really encourage Black and traditionally underrepresented groups to get vaccinated through various projects, through one project in particular, is called the Community Health Ambassador Program. Right. And where they hired individuals to go out into the community, go into barbershops, go into grocery stores and connect with individuals on a one on one basis to discuss some of their concerns and challenges about getting vaccinated. Because in the region of Peel, that was a major concern, specifically when sociodemographic data revealed the brunt impact of the pandemic. So that's right. story for me that that's I would not call it a struggle. That, that story for me of moving from the nonprofit sector, realizing the need for engagement and the need to readdress this crisis during the pandemic, mirrored with the government's response to this, to me, told a very interesting picture about right. you know, such a formative event, the COVID-19 pandemic.
0: Yes. But with that, though, I mean, you saw that there was a discrepancy there of people getting vaccinated in a, in a certain region. Is it just in that region, or is it something you could see was in happening in other groups? I mean, what the, the demographics you talked about, I mean, that could mm. easily have been seen in other regions in in the Greater Toronto area. Of course. Area. And did you pass on some of that information?
1: What we saw in particular was that in Peel, at the height of the pandemic, in one area in Brampton, one out of five individuals were testing positive for COVID-19. Oh,
0: okay. That's high.
1: That's very high. And we knew and we realized that because of the unique demographic culture and the unique demographic makeup of the three municipalities, we required a unique solution, one that did not necessarily fit other regions. Now, the government did invest certainly across Ontario in other places through similar models. But for this work in Peel in particular, I found it quite interesting that a unique policy response and a unique advocacy effort was Mm -hmm. needed to represent our community.
0: You mentioned you kind of were going door to door, telling people about, you know, you should go and get vaccinated. Mm -hmm. Did they say why they weren't getting vaccinated in the first place?
1: sometimes they would sometimes they wouldn't i mean it's, it's they're, a, and
0: they're not hearing about it
1: <laughs> well well they are but sometimes it's a really hard discussion mm-hmm. for some individuals right the long in, injustices of medical malpractice and the treatment of racialized groups in the medical field is long-standing so
0: it's a bit of a distrust
1: precisely it's distrust in the in the system the system and we as community members needed to respond to that effectively and it took a while I remember some community health ambassadors telling me they would have you know half an hour discussions hour-long discussions with some individuals and sometimes they wouldn't be able to get them vaccinated but that's okay because at least we know from a community perspective that we are trying our ultimate best
0: yes and and ultimately, the final decision is on the individual. But at least they've got more information that they trust to make that decision.
1: And this brings up the point about culturally sensitive healthcare, right. right? Sometimes, what we heard, what we've heard from community members and some of the other research projects going on in Peel, is sometimes racialized groups will not feel that they're appropriately represented in the medical community. That they don't see themselves there. Right. There's some kind of barriers in language. Culture and a wide variety of factors. So we tried to bridge that gap, right? Having individuals that they could relate to, that they could speak to openly, discuss their feelings, their concerns, their their challenges, and their struggles. Right. right? That was that was really the core of the community health ambassador project.
0: It seems like those community health ambassadors were the main focal point of making this work, of making or hoping to increase the numbers of of the people in that region getting vaccinated. How did you choose those people?
1: That's a great question. So the funding was dispersed through several core agencies in the region of Peel. I, I can speak to the region of Peel. And through those agencies, they were able to identify individuals who seemed relatable, who had a, a real interest in serving others and serving community members. Right. And a wide range of ages, demographics, backgrounds. We wanted a very wide pool to address the wide target audience.
0: Right, yes. And I, and I noticed here when I was reading some of your your research or your background here you you talk about the work that you're doing is contributing to a policy window. Yes. In where the nonprofit community took action to appropriately advocate for their clients. What do you mean by a policy window? Because it's very hard to change policy per se, or are you looking at it in a certain way to be able to get in there and, and try and make change?
1: A policy window is an unpredictable opening in the policy process that allows for actors to respond to an event. Okay. So in this case the policy window was the COVID-19 pandemic. Okay, right. What, what led to the creation of this policy window was focusing events. And in my research I identified th- three steps that occurred simultaneously and in conjunction with each other that allowed for this opportunity mm-hmm. for governments, for nonprofit leaders, for community members to react to this crisis. So, in my research, I found that the three focusing events were first, the implementation of lockdown measures in the COVID 19 pandemic. Right. That required society to freeze. Yes. Saw a lot of us in the sector we were thrown for a big curve, right? We're going mm-hmm. from day to day operations, meeting with clients one on one, to now completely stopping that and trying to adjust our systems. Right. Secondly, the renewal of Black Lives Matter in social discourse allowed us, while we're freezing, to think about what does diversity look like,
0: Mm
1: -hmm. right? And and it was an interesting time, right? Because not only are we dealing with a healthcare crisis and we're being socially disconnected from our fellow colleagues and members of society as a whole, but being frozen and also reflecting on what does race mean? How do we support Black communities moving forward. How do we correct the injustices that have been long standing? Right. Coupled with the release of socio-demographic healthcare data, particularly in the region of Peel, these three points allowed for this policy window to develop.
0: Okay. So it's everything seemed to be aligned to help you do what the, the ambassadors eventually did.
1: Precisely right. It, it it's the stars aligned, right? Yeah. The three elements came together. And they required this is the fuel these three focusing events were the fuel that allowed this policy window to emerge right and allow you know these groups to effectively respond and advocate there was a lot of advocacy work in this which i found really fascinating right a lot of time the nonprofit sector is depicted as a sector that works in silos that's something that's very consistent in the literature that is sector strained and for me it was absolutely fascinating to see that organizations that were together. financially, that were logistically challenged, right. came together at a time and advocate to the government to get such a huge investment and really highlight the need of marginalised populations in healthcare.
0: It's interesting that you say, and I'm not doubting you at all, but you know some of these organisations more often than not are competing against each other, whereas in times of crisis, everyone goes, you know, regardless of my, our own one political idea we need to put that aside and work together on this. It's a shame, isn't it, that we have to wait for a crisis for groups to actually come together, even though individually, they've all got reasons behind why they're an organization.
1: It's so fascinating, right? Because I find that when I, when I became involved with the social services sector and the nonprofit sector a few years ago, achieving funding is, is such a challenge, that, that term. And nonprofits, that's, that's what they're after. Yes. To do the work, and even as researchers, too, right? Yes. To do the work, they need to get funding. But yes. one fascinating thing that I saw was that even though these groups sometimes would be competing for the same pot of funding, particularly in Peel, what I found was that these groups worked together, they supported each other. And not necessarily during times of crisis, I think that support was always there, but I think that relationship has been strengthened now because we realise, and I think the government also realises, the significance of these groups working together.
0: Right, right. Like I said, if we can make everyone work together better during crisis why can't why not all the time (laughs) because Because, you're right they are everyone is fighting for their own um survival so to speak because of trying to find
1: funding pockets and that's such a challenge in Mm -hmm. every finding consistent throughout the literature is we need more funding we need more funding we need more funding imagine canada recently released a report that said that the policy priority area that the nonprofit sector should be concerned about this year is core funding, which means funding that is not particularly tied to a particular project, but right. core funding to help right. with the day-to-day operations of nonprofit agencies. Right. There's always this this struggle here, this uh-huh. this narrative, right? that these groups are always in competition. But in this occurrence, right, and maybe in the future, we're seeing that change a bit. The The, the traditional notion that these groups work in silos is being dismantled, and we're seeing that more and more. Right,
0: as well. As so with the project that you worked on,
1: because mm-hmm.
0: it was very very specific it was during covid it was in yes. the region of peel it was to do with the some of the minority groups in there that are, at times have been racialized etc what are you hoping to come from the paper that you're writing is it you is it just uh, an, an awareness of this is what happened and this is how the community got together to improve or is it to show this is how the community got together and this could be reciprocated in other Regions.
1: I think null translation is, is such an important question and it and it helps us take the findings that we have on page and actually put into action. Mm-hmm. Right. So a lot of what I've done is I've been able to share a lot of these findings at some conferences, right. at community events. Just yesterday I was presenting at the region of Peel's first ever health equity forum.
0: Oh fantastic.
1: And, and I sort of alluded to some of these points and kind of touched on the relationship between how these focusing events led to the policy window right, I think one encouraging thing about being involved in the involuntary sector research is that the knowledge translation opportunities are quite plentiful, I must say. I've been able to write about some of these some of these findings in a few publications, right and you know really looking to finding engaging ways to to support the work that nonprofits are doing mm-hmm. right. I think it's important. The research just can't sit on a desk.
0: No, well, and I mean, I, we wouldn't have known about what happened during COVID in the Peel region if you hadn't told me.
1: Exactly right, and and I think that happens with a lot of research, right? So we have to think really critically. And I must say, I am entirely grateful for the support of my supervisor, Rachel, who has opened the window when it comes to the policy
0: window. <laughs> That's
1: great. Sounds <laughs> too. You know, when it comes to these knowledge translation opportunities and the school of policy studies, which have been extremely beneficial and supportive, you know, in finding opportunities for me to share this. And even this podcast is an amazing opportunity to share some of these findings. Yeah,
0: share what you do, yes.
1: What I find a lot of the time in addition to nonprofits working in silos is that when I recently shared, you know, some of these some of these findings at a conference a few weeks ago at a community meeting i found that i I had a discussion with an anthropologist and geographer um, at other universities and they said they were actually looking at this same question not necessarily the same project but they were looking at the impact of COVID 19 you know on marginalized populations and looking at you know the relationship between social services sector and the government and how and how this relationship has changed over time and to me i found that so fascinating that, I did, That you know, that sometimes, you know, we as researchers work in silos a lot. Yes. And I find it fascinating that an anthropologist and a geographer are asking somewhat of the same questions that I am, right? Mm-hmm. One of the geographers that I'm engaged with is looking at healthcare deserts, right? right? And looking at access to healthcare in the region of Peel. That perfectly discusses, right, some of the disparity and can address some of the disparities some individuals are facing here. Yes. Right? Yeah. So, so I think we have to, we we have to be constantly breaking down that barrier. We have to be constantly thinking about how can we transcend this. Just how can we make this beyond just policy? Just how policy. Can do, just policy. Exactly.
0: Mm-hmm. So, what's next for you? Because you know you're going to be finished this degree in a short period of time. You've opened up your even your own eyes as to some of the sort of situation issues that are out there. But you're still a musician at heart, but you clearly love your, you know, your political activism, if you want to call it that. So what's next on the agenda for you? Is it a bit of both? Are you wanting to go more into politics or continue in research? What's next for Arvind? What's
1: next for Arvind? I think... (laughs) I which think- I know you're
0: allowed to change as you as you get older. <laughs>
1: yeah, which which I've learned and that's completely okay.
0: Mm-hmm. I
1: think what's next for me right now is I'm enjoying my my new role working with the nonprofit sector as right. a manager for health programs and prevention at Moyo Health and Community Services and understanding the academic side of what we have to do, mirrored with the professional experiences. It's yeah. quite engaging and opened my eyes to so many things. You know, one thing that when I speak to postdocs and PhD students about their research, they always say, oh, I wish I could go back and, you know, <laughs> write another paragraph now that I've learned this experience and now that I've come out of this conference and now that I've gone through this training opportunity. And I couldn't agree more. I, I, I'm i constantly learning. And I think for me, the next step is, you know, to really be immersed in the voluntary sector here in the region Mm -hmm. and take it from there i think you know i don't think i necessarily need need to have i think when i told myself when i was younger i told myself i need to have a really strict plan and who knows maybe one day i'll i'll go back to school and do my phd Uh, (laughs) he's got the bug (laughs) i think i i think so i think i have the bug i think i I think I'm really passionate about this. My supervisors, both at McGill and Queens, are are absolutely gems of human. They're they're a gem right. of a human. They're the most supportive individuals a student could ever ask for, and they're just cons I'm just constantly learning from them, and they're constantly supporting me throughout, uh, you know, all endeavors.
0: And that's what we always hope, right? I mean, you, you, those relationships with the student supervisor are super, super important going through and and like you said it's opened up your eyes giving you more opportunities to do that knowledge mobilization but at the same time you know you've clearly got a lot to offer so don't discount the work that you're doing and how much that's going to play a part moving forward Mm -hmm. and I think if you you clearly don't mind talking so it's nice that there's someone wherever you end up working if it's in the Peel region or other non-profit sort of places that they're very lucky to have you because you will you won't just come in and do a job you're looking you're coming in you're doing a job and you look to see how you can improve it and that makes a big difference thank you That's
1: that's very kind of you one thing I must say in this sector that I really appreciate is that you know even though we're sector strained even though we're constantly working. <laughs> yes. <laughs> People really care about what they do. They don't yeah. they don't choose nonprofits because of the salary and benefits. I think no, I could no, say that
0: I think because I say you have that. a passion.
1: I think yeah. I could say that openly. But, yes. you know, throughout my engagement, throughout the sector, it's been it's been absolutely fascinating to see the level of passion and dedication that my fellow colleagues possess and it's it's just such a supportive environment to be a part of
0: which is great and each each of these areas need a strong voice to be able to speak up for them right so you can collect you can collect the information you can find out what's going but you still see need someone to have that voice
1: yes you so do. that's
0: going to be very important i think so yeah so keep up the good work that's all i can say i mean You've got some great ideas there. And I know, of course, when you sort of need to relax a little bit, get your flute out and yes, <laughs> <laughs> and keep playing in your little groups that because uh, you're in, you're in various little bands and things as well with your with your flute. Yes. So so keep that up because that that provides that balance as well that you're going to need with all this sort of work that you're hoping to do. So congratulations on all of that. And, and where, wherever you work, they're going to be very lucky to have you.
1: Thank you. I really appreciate that.
0: <laughs> so this is where I have to say, unfortunately, uh, that's it, everyone. A, another week of Grad Chat sadly comes to an end. Don't forget you can download the show tomorrow from either iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CFRC Podcast. Just type in Grad Chat. Until next week, this is CJ the DJ signing off with a big hooray.